Amen. Well, good morning, church. We are in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to finish the book of Colossians today. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand up. The ushers will get you one. All good? Everybody's got their sword? That's a good thing. It is church, right? (laughs) Colossians chapter 4. We uh, did verse 1 because verse 1 kind of went back to Uh, chapter 3 dealing with uh, family being fathers and wives and husbands and kids and all that stuff so we're going to look at verses 2 through 18 today Um, I entitled this message prayer and servants the importance of prayer in a believer's life and that we're called to be servants of the most high that God has given each and every one of us a calling and so my question to you is are you fulfilling your calling we as believers, we need to pray. It's the, it's the most powerful uh, thing that we have in our arsenal is prayer, to come in boldly before the throne of grace and to a one-on-one relationship with the true and living God who never puts you on hold. I mean, people do. Even your family will. But God will always be right there to receive you when you come to Him, and that's a great thing. But serving God is even more intense because when you start to step out in faith and to serve the true and living God, what happens is oftentimes you get hammered by the opposition because they know if they can make you retreat and not serve, then they stop you from doing the things that God's called you to do. And the enemy does not want you to succeed. The enemy does not want you to lead people to Christ. And so when you choose to serve God, many times we come under what we call spiritual attack uh, by the opposition because uh, the enemy is upset and he doesn't want other people to get saved. And he doesn't want you to serve God. And so we know that when we serve God, there is no greater thing than to serve the great one. And we we do it because we love him because he's done so much for me. And so a lot of Christians have a calling on their life. Well, all of them do, but not all of them are responding to the call. And so we're going to be looking at prayer today, and we're going to be looking at servants today. And as we look through all these names at the end, most times pastors will skip that whole portion. But I think these names uh, and how they're described and what kind of persons they are, I think it's going to be beneficial for us today. As we look at some of these names and realize, man, that sounds like me, or, or you know, maybe I can resonate with that believer and, w- and what God's doing in their lives. As we look through this wonderful book, it was such a great book. Um, Paul dealing with the Gnostics and Gnosticism, Eastern philosophy, mysticism, uh, legalism, the Judaizers. Uh, he was battling against false doctrine infiltrating into the church in Colossae. Though Paul had never been to Colossae, but the pastor, Epaphras, had been with Paul, no doubt, in Ephesus when Paul taught there for two years. And so Paul comes in and immediately starts out the book with prayer that he's praying for this this church, these people he's never even met, and he's praying without ceasing, and he's hearing great things about them. And then he puts to silence the critics who would say Jesus is not this and Jesus is not that. And so he tells us that Jesus, he came to this world in the image of the invisible God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. It says that he is the creator of all things. All things were created by him and for him. And he was before all things. And so the preexistent one. And it talks about who Jesus is and what he's done and the amazing things that he's done. It talks about the preeminence of Christ. 
And then as we moved over towards chapter uh, 2, we start to see um, not, not about philosophy, but about Christ. He's, he puts the rest philosophies and the deceits of mankind with their, their rules, their ideas of, of living and their traditions of men. And just basically, it undermines the Bible. He says, stay away. Watch out for the things. That were, you know, so many times people will send me stuff and they go, did you hear this? And it's, it's from people that aren't even Christians. And it's like, why are you listening to this junk? Well, you know, they, they said this about the Bible. You're listening to non-believers. And so Paul warns us against vain philosophies and, and, and deceit that comes from the traditions of men and the things of this world. And, and then as we moved on and got into uh, chapter 3, he talked about uh, us being in Christ Jesus and not fulfilling our flesh. And the importance of not being carnal. And he talks about the putting on and the putting off. That we are to put off sin. And he lists all these different sins. And he says, put off the flesh, but then put on the good stuff. Put up on holiness. Put on kindness and humility and meekness. Above all, put on love. It doesn't get any better than that. So Jesus will never ask you to put something off that's not good for you without giving you something to put on. And that's important because you have to replace something that you were doing with something that's good. If you were caught up in a lifestyle of sin and then you turn away from that lifestyle, coming to Jesus fills that hole, that void that's in your life. And God puts a hole in every man and woman's heart that can only be filled with Jesus Christ. If you don't fill it with Jesus, you're going to go back to your old ways. And so he talks to us about that, putting on uh, tender mercies and kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. You know, he, he talks to us about forgiving one another. If you're a Christian and you don't forgive, something's wrong with you. You know, whenever it gets to that situation in my life where someone's, I, I, I'm angry towards someone, I've got some bitterness, a judgmental heart, God quickly reminds me of how much he forgave me of. And I'm like, oh man, you had to bring that up. All right, I forgive him. And God wants us to do that. And at the end of chapter 3, we looked at the family unit. How wives are to be towards their husbands. How husbands are to be towards their wives. How fathers and, and mothers are to be towards their children. How children are supposed to act towards their parents. How we're supposed to act as employees. How we're supposed to act as employers. That when you're working in a facility, whether you're an employee or you own a business, you do it for Jesus. You're, you're there because you serve Jesus Christ, so you be the best employee you can be. And then he says, and if you're masters, there's a warning there. He says, make sure if you own a, a, a building and you have a business, if you're a master, be just and fair. Why? Because our God's just and fair to us. And so we're supposed to be an example of Jesus in this world. And now as we come to this last section, Paul goes right back. He started with prayer. He started with grace. He ends with prayer. He ends with grace. And then he ends with some names of some people that are serving with him and some encouragements for you and me. And so in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to, of the word to speak the mysteries of Christ, for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And so the importance of prayer. Now he is asking for prayer from them. 
Now, I, th- I think this is a little amazing. Paul's asking, hey, pray for me. You ever, you ever ask someone to pray for you? Do you guys realize the power of prayer? Prayer is so powerful, why do you think it's the thing we do the least? The enemy makes us too busy. The enemy makes us too sleepy. We get sidetracked. We get caught up with other things. When, when you stop and you realize that prayer is the most powerful thing that you can do is to interact with the creator of the universe, uh, listen, you will spend more time on your knees. And the reason you might be going through things today is because you haven't been spending enough time on your knees. I always tell people I pray first thing in the morning. They say, well, I pray in the evening. Well, maybe if you prayed in the morning, you wouldn't have to pray for all those things that happen by evening. You need to pray before you get out of bed. You need to pray without ceasing all day long. Because I guarantee every one of you is going through something. Whether it's, whether it's marriage problems, you know, uh, family problems, children problems, financial problems, physical problems, emotional problems. If you're going through something today, just let me see your hand. Okay, that's a lot of people. But are you praying? See, that's, that's, that's the question i got to ask you. Are you committing to prayer? See, in the importance of corporate prayer, gathering together collectively and praying. Guys, I'm always hearing from people what they're going through, and I'm not putting a guilt trip on you, but I don't see them at worship and prayer night on Wednesday night. And it's... <laughs> There's, there's nothing greater than have a bunch of people pray for you. You know why? Because there's power in prayer. To be successful serving God, you, you must constantly be in prayer. And when you're in the tough times, we tend to need to pray even more, don't we? And how much better would it be to, to have other people praying for you? Because prayer opens doors. Paul's asking that they would pray that God would open a door for him to preach the gospel. The very thing that got him in jail, he's praying, hey, give me an open door that I can go do what got me thrown in here. Because there's power in prayer. Prayer changes things. And you know what? God always answers our prayers. Can I get an amen? Amen. You know he answers your prayers. He says yes, he says no, or he says not now. But hey, listen, if you're going through something, I want to encourage you, come to prayer and worship night. We would love to pray for you. We don't need details. But I'll tell you what, and here's why I say this, because in Revelation chapter 5, we see the church in heaven. We see the throne of God. We see the elders before the throne of God with the bowls of the prayers of the saints. Now, when I hear that, the bowls of the prayers of the saints, I tend to think that when God tells us not now, not yet, that, that we just keep praying and those prayers start filling that bowl and filling that bowl and filling that bowl until the point all of a sudden that last prayer goes off and the thing overflows into a blessing. So maybe you might have your bowl half full and you're going through something this week. You show up to worship and prayer night. We'll lay hands on you. We'll pray for you and we'll spill that thing. Because I believe prayer is powerful. I can do nothing apart from Jesus, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The power of prayer. You know, in Acts chapter 3, we saw Peter and John, after Pentecost, going up to the Temple Mount, um, 
during prayer time. And as they go up there, they run into this fella who's at the gate of uh, Beautiful. He's been crippled since birth, 40 years, never been able to walk. And he's, he's there at the Temple Mount begging uh, for alms, you know, alms for the poor, right? Because, hey, what a better place to, to beg than at the temple where people are coming to ask for forgiveness for their sins, right? I mean, how could you walk up to ask God for forgiveness and walk past the beggar and go, yeah, get your own. You know, you can't. You give him some money. You want to look good, right? So I, he had a good business probably. I don't know. But he's just kind of staring off in the distance just going, you know, probably alms for the poor, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And Peter and John look at him and they command him to look into their eyes. And he's expecting that he's going to get some money out of them. But what happens is Peter looks at him and he says this, silver and gold I have none, but what I have to give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this guy stands up and his legs become so strong, he starts leaping. I'm thinking he's dancing through the temple. Everybody's blown away. They all know this guy. He's been there for 40 years. He's an icon at the temple. And here now he's jumping around. He's dancing. He's praising the Lord. Peter steps in, gives the gospel message. 5,000 get saved. But the religious rulers got upset and they arrested him and John and threw him in jail. And then the next morning, had all the religious rulers and the high priests gathered together, and they scolded them. They said, hey, no more of this teaching of Jesus of Nazareth stuff. And they said, well, if it's better for us to obey you or to obey God, you judge. But we have to teach it. We cannot stop. And so they threatened them because they couldn't do anything to him because the whole crowd saw it. This was a notable miracle. Everybody knew this guy was crippled since birth for 40 years. And so how could they, how could they you know, do something to these guys because this really happened? And so they threatened him not to speak in the name of Jesus of Nazareth anymore, and they sent him on their way. So Peter and, and John go back to the church and tell them what happens. They all rejoice. And what do they do? They start praying with thanksgiving. God, look what you did. And they start praying for boldness, corporate prayer, collective prayer. Check this out. Acts 4.31 And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Wouldn't that be neat if we all just started praying and all of a sudden the building shook? We're not even in earthquake country, right? How cool would that be? And then God gives us the boldness to speak the gospel, the word of God. When we come together collectively, stuff happens. In verse uh, 3, he says, Meanwhile, praying for us that God would open that door for the word to speak the mysteries of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. You, you need to be praying that God would open doors for you. If God's put it on your heart to do something, but you're not seeing how that's ever going to happen, you pray, God, show me when and where, and open that door and make it possible. There's power in prayer. And then he gets to verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom towards those who are without. 
That's so important for us. Redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. That's why I tell you guys, know your Bible. How are you going to have an answer for somebody unless you know your Bible? You need to be ready to have an answer for every man because I'll tell you what, here's what's going to happen. False teachers are going to come up to you and they're going to say something. They'll say a word, a part of a verse that's in the Bible and you'll go, oh, yeah, I remember reading that. And then they'll throw lies on it. Isn't that what Satan does? Didn't he say to Eve, has God said? You know, all the cults, all the false religion acknowledge Jesus as either a great man, a prophet, a great teacher, but not as God. Not as creator of all things. Not as the one that paid for our sins and he's the only way to heaven. So what do they do? They, they take verses from the Bible and they twist them and they take them out of context and they, and they, they lure young believers away with false teaching, with stuff that tickles their ears. There's a lot of phoniness out there, guys. And if you don't know your Bible, let me tell you what. When these guys roll up at your door, knock on your door, they will twist you up in knots because they know your Bible better than you do and they use it for the wrong reasons to send people to hell. They don't even realize what they're doing. Now, I know that sounds mean for me to say that, but I'll tell you what. Christianity is not religion. It's a relationship. And everything outside of Christianity is religion. And religion is man's attempt to ride himself with God. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot earn your way to heaven. All these beliefs that are out there, everything outside of Christianity is trying to earn their way. You can't. You have to acknowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. He's the answer. He paid for your sins with His blood, and He said, it is finished, now take the gift. You can't do anything but receive what He's offering. And then be gracious and thankful and serve Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But be careful, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. You know, there's, there's a whole New Age movement here on the North Shore that is really coming in strong, coming in hot. And I'll tell you what, and you, know, they, you know, we call it new age, but it ain't new. <laughs> I mean, it's the same stuff that was going on in Colossae. It was new age back then. We should just call it old age. It's still the same old garbage. It's not working. But there's this real push, and they're calling themselves Christians, but they tell young believers, they, they dupe young adults into thinking in order to be a Christian, you've got to earn your salvation. That's false doctrine. That's false doctrine. That's saying that Christ died on the cross in vain. They also tell me that this Bible is not the Word of God. <laughs> Why is that? Well, it's written by men. So I'm like, well, whose writings are you listening to? And when they tell you, you go, those guys aren't even Christians, and you're listening to them tell you that the Bible is not the Word of God. Hello! Red flag! And then I'll find that they'll use certain verses in the Bible to correct real Christians. But then you go, well, I thought you didn't believe in the Bible because it was written by men. They say, well, we believe in some of it. And other. You believe what works for you and then you disregard what deals with you. You've got to study the whole Bible to show yourself approved. You need to study the whole counsel of God. Strong warning to those that take away from the Word of God. Strong warning to those that add to the Word of God. Don't do it. But if you don't know your whole Bible, these guys will dupe you into false beliefs. 
And here's, here's the other thing of this, this New Age movement, what's going on. They, they say that if you call yourself a Christian and you eat meat, fish, chicken, beef, pork, you're going to hell unless you repent and become a vegetarian. Now, I'm telling you this to watch out for what's going on in the island. And you know why they say if you need to repent and become a vegetarian or you're going to hell because they're works-driven, false doctrine. And they say that we're all supposed to be vegetarians. We're not supposed to kill animals because the Bible says thou shall not kill. Well, hello, taking that out of context. The Ten Commandments deal with man, not animals. The Ten Commandments deal with man's relationship with God and man's relationship with man. When it says thou shall not kill, what that means is that mankind should not contemplate murdering other people. It doesn't have anything to do with if I'm trying to protect my family. Somebody threatens the life of my family. We get into a knife fight. He dies. I'm not held accountable. I'm just protecting my family. But it doesn't deal with animals. Jesus didn't die for animals. Jesus didn't die for nature. Jesus didn't die for angels. Jesus died for you. And, and all through the Old Testament, he prescribed food and animals for us to eat. So I say, how can you say that? How can you say that people that eat meat are going to die and go to hell because they killed animals? That's wrong. They go, oh, well, it's Genesis 1.29, where God gave herbs for man to eat. Read the rest of your Bible. You got, let's, look, let's break it down. In Genesis, when God made man, God made animals, God made nature. He created all these things, birds and fishes, the trees, the bushes. Everything was in, within, it was all in harmony with God. Man was in harmony with God. Animals were in harmony with God. That nature was in harmony with God. And everybody ate fruits and vegetables. Even the, the meat-eater animals that we know of today, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and dinosaurs, ate vegetables and fruits and grass. But what you've got to understand, what most people don't realize, is when man fell in the garden, not only was human, the humanity of mankind rocked forever, but it affected all animals and all nature. The Bible tells us that all of creation is groaning and travailing, awaiting for the coming of the Lord. All nature, plants, animals. So when man fell in the garden, everything went upside down. Animals were now attacking animals and eating animals. Animals were attacking man. Man had to protect himself. The soil wasn't as pure as it used to be. The water wasn't as pure as it used to be. The air wasn't as pure as it used to be. Everything changed. And all through the Old Testament, God prescribed animals for man to eat, that he had them for man to eat. In the New Testament, he told Peter, Arise, kill, and eat. That animals and fruits and vegetables were given from God to his people to nourish them. So when you tell people, unless you repent and become a vegetarian, you're going to hell, that's false doctrine, but that's what's swooping around. Be ready to have an answer for every man. I got one for you. Romans 14.2 says this, For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak 
eats only vegetables. Now, if you're a vegetarian, I'm not trying to put you down. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But listen to what he goes on to say. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God receives them both. You want to eat vegetables? Good on you. You want to eat meat? Go for it. You want to eat both? Awesome. But don't judge each other. But when we tell people that they're going to hell because they eat meat, that's false doctrine. When we tell people that they have to earn their salvation, that's false doctrine. Let me, let me read something to you. You've got to hear this. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Listen carefully. Now the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in the latter times, we're in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from eating meat, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If you don't know your Bible, you'll get led astray. That's why we're committed to teaching through the Bible here. Because for many people, Sunday is the only time the Bible's opened. Unfortunately. You should be opening this book every day. It's your daily bread. You need to open it. And so he says, walk in wisdom to those that don't have wisdom. Walk in wisdom to those that are outside redeeming the time. We don't have much time. Jesus is coming soon. Let your speech always be with grace. What's that mean? Love. Seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Seasoned with salt. Now salt has some interesting properties to it. Number one, it's a preservative. Uh, it enhances taste, and it's actually a healing. So I remember um, once surfing cannons years ago, got blown up on the North Pole, flipped over on my back on a giant coral head, laying on my back, dry reefed. And it was like a tiger came by and went <laughs> on my back. And just these claw marks. And so I paddle back out. Everybody's telling me to go in because I'm bleeding like crazy. I got some deep wounds. And I'm thinking to myself, that was my first wave. And I won't be able to surf for a couple weeks if there's stitches. So I'm like, no, I'm surfing. And when I finally went in, a week went by. This thing wasn't healing. And it just started getting red. It looked like it was becoming staff. And I remember a little old auntie saying to me, pack it with salt. Get some Hawaiian salt. Pack it with salt. I packed it with salt. The next day it was healing. So salt is a healer. So let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, healing words to a lost and dying world. Salt, salt it gives taste. It enhances taste. Let your words be palatable to those that don't know Jesus, that are lost and need salvation. But then it's also a preservative. 
It's a preservative. In those days, they didn't have refrigeration, so they salted meat so it would last longer. What am I trying to say? Well, Jesus said that you and I are the salt of the earth. You and I are what's preserving this earth, prolonging the judgment that's going to come upon a lost and dying world. As long as the church of Jesus Christ is here on this planet, the tribulation can't come. Because we are the preserving factor holding back judgment. In Genesis 18 and 19, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the angel said to Lot, we can do nothing until you're out of here. Judgment can't come until we get you out, get the righteous out. Abraham said this, God won't judge the wicked with the just. Peter said, God knows how to separate them. So as long as we're here, we're the only thing holding off the judgment of God. So prayer is important. Walking in wisdom is important. Knowing your word is important. Praying for one another. Praying collectively. Let's get those prayers answered. Let's fill those bowls. Sharing the gospel. You, don't, you know, with love, with grace. You don't need to go out there and tell people, look at you, you're in sin, you're going to hell. That might work on a couple people, but not on the majority. Okay? If they ask questions, you can tell them truth. Am I going to hell? Yeah, you're going to hell. But you need to approach them not pointing out how rotten they are, not pointing out where they're going, but pointing out the one that died for them and loved them and loved them so much, he wants to make a way for them. Because there's only heaven and there's only hell. And apart from Jesus, you'll never make it. And so we need to come to people with love and grace, seasoned with salt, palatable, healing words, preserving words. And now, as we finish this up, we get into these names that he mentions. And his, these people greeting you, his, his final salutation uh, to the, the church at Colossae. And so as we look at these names, maybe you can relate to one or more of them. Does this describe you? And so look at the first one there. We see in verses 7 and 8, Tychicus, or Tychicus, or Tuhakis, however you pronounce it, whatever part of the island you're from. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. You know, we can read that and just go quickly over that. I'm kind of like, are you kidding me? Look how this guy is described. Beloved brother. Faithful minister. Fellow servant in the Lord. I want, I want someone to say that about me. I mean, you want someone to say that about you. This guy was faithful. This guy was with Paul. This guy was in Rome with Paul in prison. This guy helped write this letter because Paul's eyes were so bad. Now Paul will sign it at the end in big letters to put his stamp on it. But Tychicus was faithful. How do you know he was faithful? He was given the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon to deliver them to these cities and to deliver them from Rome to Colossia. That's 1,200, 960, I think it was 9 
1,296.6 miles away. On foot. Over 1,200 miles. Almost 1,300 miles. No trains, no planes, no automobiles. Donkey. Boats. That's a commitment. Now, if I told you walk west side, go Waimea, preach the gospel, you're like, you're nuts. But he did it. And he's called a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. He's mentioned in Acts 20, being there with Paul. And then in verse 9, he talks about um, not only will Tychicus or Tychicus be coming out, but I am sending you also Onesimus. I am sending them to you for this very purpose that you may know that you may know your that I may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. And so he's going to send Tychicus and Onesimus so that he can, so they, that the Colossi will know everything that's going on with Paul, and Paul would then know everything that's going on with them. Onesimus, interesting character. He was a slave. He was a slave to Philemon. One of the prison epistles was to Philemon who was was a slave owner that got saved and is now holding church in his house. Onesimus was a runaway slave from Philemon and ran into Paul. Paul led him to the Lord, and now he's a brother. He calls him a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. And so he's going to send this letter to Philemon, which is just one chapter, and it's a letter uh, just kind of telling Philemon, listen, um, he's with me, receive him back, he's born again now, he's been profitable to me, um, don't, you know, because back in those days, if you had a slave run away, you could put your slave to death and nobody would bat an eye. And so he says, hey, uh, receive him, he's a brother, uh, he's one of us. Love him like Christ has loved you. Forgive him like Christ has forgiven you. And uh, if he owes you anything, put it to my account. I'll take care of it. And, and then Paul throws in this, I don't want to mention you owe me. <laughs> and then in verse 10, we come to this guy, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, uh, the nephew of Uh, to Barnabas about whom you received instructions if he comes to you welcome him so now he talks about Aristarchus and Mark John Mark Aristarchus was a fellow prisoner Aristarchus was with Paul in Acts 19 in Ephesus during the the time when Paul was preaching and the riots broke out and the beatings took place and then he was also with Paul in Acts 27 we see when they they uh, were sailing into a hurricane and got shipwrecked so this is a faithful brother who was with Paul in the hard times and the good times a faithful friend and brother and servant in the Lord now John Mark many of you know about him we know that in the book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary tour, uh, Barnabas asked for his nephew, John Mark, to come with them. And so he did. And things got tough, and Mark dug out. Okay? So then later, when Paul wanted to go do the second missionary trip uh, to revisit the church, he said, Barnabas, do you want to do that? And Barnabas says, that sounds great. I'll get Mark. And he said, no, I don't want that guy. 
That guy's a loser. He took off on us. I don't need that. I'm not going through that again. And they got in this heated argument, and it was so heated that they, they separated. They broke fellowship. And Barnabas took John Mark, and, and, and Paul took Silas, and they went their different ways. So who was right? Well, they both were. God split it on purpose to yield double fruit. Because Paul was right. Paul and Silas would end up in beaten, thrown in jail. Mark wouldn't have been able to handle that at this time as a young believer. And Barnabas was right to look at a young believer, another brother who's failed, and lift them up and to stand them up and to encourage them and to pour into them and say, come on, let's keep going for Christ. And how many of you have had a Barnabas in your life when you failed? that came alongside of you and encouraged you, come on, let's get back in the game. And maybe uh, there's someone here today that knows a mark. It's defeated. Broken. You go pour into them. You go encourage them. You encourage them to get back in the game. There's no quitters for Jesus. And then in verse 11... He says, and Jesus, who's called justice. That's all we know about this guy, really. Um, he's with Paul. Jesus, who's called justice. Uh, why, why does he say that? It looks like he changed his name from Jesus to justice. You know why? Because Jesus was a very common name in that time. In, in the Hebrew, it was Joshua, Yeshua. In the Greek, it was Jesus. That's why when you hear about Jesus, our Lord, they always say things like Jesus of Nazareth so people will know who you were talking about. And so this guy, they're preaching the gospel of Jesus, but his name's Jesus, so it looks like they said it's Jesus who's called justice. Like they kind of changed it so they wouldn't confuse people. And then in verse 12, it says, These are my only fellow workers in the kingdom, God, God who are of the circumcision that have proved to be a comfort to me. So all these names that he just mentioned were uh, Jewish believers who got saved, got born again. They had a Jewish background, but now they're Christians. And then in verse 12, he says, um, Epaphras, whom is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayer that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and Herolop in Herolopolis. So Epaphras was actually the pastor of Colossae, and he would go around to the neighboring cities, Laodicea and Herolopolis, and, and preach the gospel and make sure they're doing right. Apparently, Epaphras, Epaphras must have been in Ephesus when Paul was there teaching the Word of God for two years in the school of Tyrannus. So uh, historic writings say that Paul for two years taught every day somewhere between four and six hours a day. And that people were coming from all over the region to hear him teach the Word of God, getting saved and going back out and spreading the gospel. Epaphras was one of those guys. And he went and he started up Colossae. And, and, and for all we know, he started Laodicea at Herolopolis. He, and it says here that he was, uh, that he, he labor, laboring fervently for you in prayers. Laboring fervently. The, the idea is like he was praying like so fervently, 
like in labor, like in pain, and just, you know, with such a, a heart for the people. Laboring like giving birth. Do you do that for the church? Do you, you pray like that for the church? Do you, I, I bet you pray like that for your kids. You got kids, you're praying like that. Can you imagine if we all prayed like that? Praying fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And he tells them that I bear witness that he has a great zeal for you and for those in Laodicea and Herolopolis. I have a great zeal for you guys. I, I pray every single day for you guys that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because I believe that prayer is powerful. In verse 14 he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now you guys all know Luke. Luke was given to uh, Paul to be an assistant to him. God arranged that. Why? Because everywhere Paul went, he got beat. You need to have your own doctor traveling with you. He was always sick. He was always getting whipped. He's getting beat, thrown into prison. You know, some people might say, oh, he didn't have enough faith. Faith prosperity tells you if you're sick, you don't have faith. That's a lie. That's false doctrine. You know how many people in the Bible, good men, prophets, died from a disease? You know, sometimes those, these infirmities that you and I deal with is to keep us closer to the Lord. Hello? If you're all healthy and wealthy, you'd probably do your own thing. Think about that. That health and wealth doctrine, it's carnal. Why? If you told everybody, hey, come to Jesus, you'll be healthy and rich. We'd all come for the wrong reason. So Luke, Luke, this is an awesome guy. He's a physician. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. But then he mentions this guy, Demas. It says, Demas greets you. Now, when he writes Philemon, he calls Demas a fellow servant. But when you get to 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says to Timothy, Demas has forsaken me, having agape, having loved this present age, this present world. And how many Christians have you known that have gone back to the world? Can I encourage you to go after them? Yeah, but they don't listen to me. Try again. How many times did you not listen to Jesus? How many times did he go back and try again? Or, or should I say, which one of you heard the gospel for the first time and go, boy, I need that? No, somebody went after you. Somebody kept going after you. Somebody didn't let up. Multiple people were dropping the, the Jesus bomb on you everywhere. You finally surrendered. And we all know somebody that's come back to the world. They got beat up, they got depressed, they went back. Somehow they thought their old lifestyle was going to be, you know, just awesome. And it, it just, now they're in the toilet. You need to go back after them. And then he says there in verse 15, um, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that's in his house. We don't know anything about Nymphus other than he's, you know, heading up a uh, um, church at his house and then it goes on to say verse 16 now when this epistle is read among you see that it is read also in the church of Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodicea 
and say to Eric, Eric Chippis, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And so Paul talks here about these circulating letters to the different cities. Now, this was very common, that when someone would write a letter, they would make copies of it and distribute it to all the church. That's how the Gospels got around. That's how these letters of, of Paul and others, Peter, James, you know, how they all circulated is that they would make copies and send them to the other church. So no doubt, I'm just speculating, it's my opinion, uh, maybe the letter to, uh, to the Ephesians went to, a copy of it went to Laodicea and, and Colossae got the, the letter to Colossae. And then when they were finished, they were to uh, exchange letters. Uh, here, read this now, Ephesians. It's a lot like what I talked about in Colossae, but there's some more stuff. And likewise, Laodicea, read these things. So they circulated these letters. They made copies of all these letters so the whole church could get the letter. You and I have the privilege of having all the letters right here. And so then he says about this last guy, he says to Archippus, we don't know who Archippus or Archippus, Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, uh, some people think that um, this is kind of a dig, like a correction, like get busy. Um take heed. I mean, can you imagine that if it is? Can you imagine sitting around the whole church is listening to this letter and they're hearing these names and they're going, oh, awesome and everything. And all of a sudden, Archippus hears somebody go, and Archippus. He goes, oh, this is going to be great. Am I going to get a medal for this? This is awesome. Hey, get busy. Pull it together. Everybody turns and looks at Archippus. You know, I tend to think that there's a good chance that maybe Archippus is just somebody who didn't see the fruit happening in the ministry as quick as he wanted and kind of leveled off. You ever know anybody that done that? Anybody that was just on fire for Jesus? They were doing all kinds of stuff, but then over time, though, they still love Jesus. But they just kind of leveled off. Put it in cruise control. They're just not as excited as they were before. They're just not out there sharing the love of God like they were before. They're just not serving like they used to serve. And I think maybe Paul is just saying, hey, um, take heed. God gave you a ministry for a reason. Finish, finish well. Verse 18, he says, this is the salutation by my own hand, the hand of Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So he starts with grace. He ends with grace. He starts with prayer. He ends with prayer. That should be describing us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, just for the reminder of uh, how faithful you are and the importance of us speaking to you all day long. Having that relationship, that one-on-one, -on -one, that you tore the veil and you made it possible that we could come boldly before your throne of grace. Lord, let us take advantage of that. 
Give us the strength to be reminded to pray more. Pray without ceasing. Pray and always give thanks in every situation. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.